Welcome, everybody, to our weekend. Normally, we would be starting a brand new season, but we're going to delay that until next weekend. And that season is going to be about how Jesus ministers to us in our pain. This weekend, however, I thought we had better take a little bit of time aside and talk about the pain that we see in our world right now, the troubles that are going on in our world. And the question that so many people are asking is like, what in the world is going on? It just seems like one wave of trouble after another. How do you find comfort in the midst of all those things? I was reminded of what Jesus did say in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. Our Lord said, here on earth you will have many trials or troubles or tribulations and sorrows. And I think all of us would agree that that is very true, that here on this earth throughout all of history, there have been trials, there have been sorrows, there's been troubles. Maybe right now in your life you're experiencing some troubles, some challenges and difficulties. I know when Jesus spoke these words to his first followers, they had just heard some news that deeply troubled them. Back in John chapter 13, Jesus told them that three things are about to happen. First of all, he was about to die. Secondly, one of them was going to betray him. And thirdly, one of them was going to deny him. And eventually, they were all going to leave. Can you imagine how those men felt when they heard those words? I mean, how can somebody who claims to be the Son of God die? How could the one who raised people from the dead die and not have the power to keep death away? And what about the kingdom? And what about this whole idea of peace? And, you know, they're thinking of their power and their prosperity serving with Jesus in his great kingdom. Isn't it amazing how in one day bad news can turn your whole world upside down? I mean, think about this. One day they're excited about the kingdom of God. The next day the king is going to disappear. He's going to die. And what's going to happen to this kingdom? It only takes one phone call. It only takes one you know, doctor's visit. It only takes one uh, natural disaster. It only takes one world event. And our whole lives just get all messed up, all turned around. I remember when we were living on the West Coast. Marsha and I had a home. It was up on a little hill. And uh, we had a beautiful view of the bay, the south part of what was considered the San Francisco Bay Area. And past the bay were the coastal mountains that we could see. And in the wintertime, when the uh, rains would come in, you could literally see them coming off the Pacific, rolling over those mountains and dropping down great sheets of rain. And some seasons, not very many, but some seasons, it would just be one wave of storm after another to the point that I remember uh, on a couple of occasions there were levees that were about to break in the valley because there was so much rain that kept coming in. Well, right now in your life, it may just feel like one wave after another of trouble. It certainly feels like that in the world, doesn't it? And so just real quickly, let's talk a little bit about the troubles that we see in our world right now. I mean, we've been through the pandemic. We're still in a pandemic, I guess. I read uh, just a couple days ago that 6 million people have died so far because of COVID. 
and it's created all kinds of trouble all the way from masks and and um, vaccines and it's pitted you know people against each other in the church outside of the church in families trying to figure out what the truth is what to do with it man it has been a big pain for us or how about the political turmoil that we as a country here in the United States have have been through in these recent years or the social unrest that you know we've been grappling with and then now the whole situation there in Ukraine uh, with the uh, invasion of Russia and all that goes with that, the humanitarian crisis, the evil of that invasion, uh, the rise in gas prices, inflation. I mean, it's just coming wave after wave. It's like you don't get a chance to catch your breath and boom, there's something else, not to mention what you may personally be going through right now in your own life added to all of that. And what it does is it kind of has a compounding effect on our lives. So it's not just that I've got this trouble in my, you know, in the world. It then compounds itself and I end up having, you know, trouble in my life. And what it causes us to do is literally bring troubles into our own lives. We bring trouble upon ourselves. You say, what do you mean by that? What I, what I mean by that is, for instance, when things are going bad in our lives or in the world around us, we have a tendency to increase that trouble for ourselves by fear, by our fears. You know, it's interesting, John 20, it tells us that when Jesus was crucified, that the disciples went and found a room and locked themselves in that room, fearing that they were next. Can you imagine these grown men behind those locked doors, wondering what is going to happen next? What drives fear in our lives? What drives fear in your life? I think the bottom line is loss of control. When you and I feel like we are out of control, when it feels like the world around us is out of control, fear sets in. And I'm guessing that there are some of us listening right now here in the United States or around the world or at one of our campuses or at one of our venues, there's some of us who are frozen in fear. Not just because of the big things that are happening around us, but because of all the little things compounded with that. Are you frozen by fear right now? Has fear gripped your life? You know, a second thing that can increase our troubles are our doubts, our doubts. You know, when we lose control, when things aren't going the way we thought they should go, when it seems like God's not hearing or answering our prayers, we become doubtful, we begin to doubt ourselves, begin to doubt others, we begin to doubt, you know, the power structures that are in place. We begin to doubt God. I mean, there was doubt amongst the 12. Thomas doubted that Jesus had really risen from the dead. He says, until I see it with my own eyes, I'm not going to believe any of you guys that you saw him, that he's risen from the dead. Or how about Peter? I mean, Peter really, I think, struggled with doubt that God could really forgive him after he had denied his own Savior three different times. <clears throat> what kind of doubt are you facing in your life right now? What's plaguing you? What are you wrestling with? What are you grappling with? What are you wondering about? You know, a third aspect is our selfishness. You know, 
if you look at the disciples, they went from thinking about Jesus and his kingdom and the future to now just being concerned about themselves. I mean, what am I going to do? I left everyone and everything to follow him. What am I going to do in my life now? And it became just very inward focused. I've got to, I got to save my own skin now. Maybe you have felt that way too. Maybe you've just given up on others. You've given up on the world. <clears throat> like a turtle, you've withdrawn into your own shell. It's like, man, I got to take care of myself. I can't worry about everybody else. I got to take care of my family. I can't, thinking about, I can't be thinking about the needs of my community and the world around us. So do you see how you have trouble in the world and how that compounds just everyday trouble? And then we even multiply the trouble on ourselves by our fears, by our doubts, and by our selfishness. It is to all of that that Jesus spoke these words in John chapter 14. He said to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now that word don't, if you go back to the original language, literally means stop, okay? Jesus is saying, look, stop, put the brakes on. And he says, don't be troubled. And that word in the original language actually means don't be stressed, how many of you are feeling stressed? It means pain, and it can also mean sorrow. So think about this. Jesus is looking at these guys who are riddled now with fear and, and, and doubts and, and selfishness, and, and they're scared. And he says to them, hey, guys, stop. Stop being stressed. Stop feeling pain about this. Stop being so sorrowful. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's all Jesus ever said to them, I would say that would be really, really hard to take. I mean, that's like going up to somebody who has smashed their finger with a hammer and saying, stop hurting over that. Or somebody who's depressed and saying, just get over it. Stop being depressed. It's like, I would like the pain to stop. I would like to not be depressed. Just telling me not to do it's not going to help. But we know our Lord Jesus, he wouldn't just say that, right? When he says, don't let your heart be troubled, he then gives them some reasons why and reasons why you and I, as we face our own troubles and the troubles of this world, don't have to be overcome by them. Now, let's make sure we're clear on this. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to remove the troubles. I'm going to remove the pain. I'm not going to suffer. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to leave. What he's saying is, in the midst of all of this trouble, you can find, you can find calm. You can find peace and hope. Would you like that in your life right now? I know I want it in my life. I want to have peace in the midst of the storm. So what does that require? Well, first of all, Jesus is telling them in the passage, we're going to read it now, focus on me. Focus on me. Now, I want to read to you some of the passage here. It's rather long. I'm not going to put it up on the board, but if you want to follow along, turn your Bibles open to John chapter 14. There at your house or your apartment or at one of our campuses or venues. Join me. John chapter 14. I am going to start reading at about verse 8. Philip, that's one of Jesus' followers, said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? 
Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? That's a great question for you and me, isn't it? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. There's that very intimate, unexplainable relationship. Verse 11, just believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Or at least believe because of the work that you have seen me do. I tell you the truth. Anyone, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I have done. That's an invitation to them. That's an invitation to you and me. And even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Now, notice how those two things are linked, okay? Only ask God to do what will bring glory to God. A lot of things we ask for are meant to bring glory to ourselves, right? Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So Philip, who's you know, nervous about everything, he says, okay, Lord, if you, just, if you just show us the Father, we'll all calm down, or at least I'll calm down. You know what he's asking for? Philip is asking for a Moses moment. Say, so what's a Moses moment? Remember the Old Testament Moses said to God, show me, reveal your, yourself, show me your face. And God says, I can't do that because you can't look on my glory. It'll kill you. But God allowed him to see kind of his perimeter. And so Philip's saying, you know, give us a Moses, give us a Moses moment. Let us experience you some way uh, that will verify for us that, that, that you really are God and everything's under control. And, and Jesus just looks at him and says, look. Look at me, Philip. <laughs> if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What's Jesus mean by that? He means that I am what the Father looks like when and if he took on flesh. I am the embodiment of God. There again is that intimacy. You know, we have one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three distinct personalities, but one divine essence. Jesus says, you want to see the Father, look at me. I embody all that God is. William Barclay put it like this in one of his commentaries. He said, Jesus brought God's accent, message, mind, and heart to humanity. And Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, is not only calling us to recognize who he is, okay, but he also wants us to understand that he, that he is deity. It's not just, hey, believe in me, but believe in who I am. I am very God. And I've come to reveal myself to you. That's why Jesus goes on and he says these words. He says, look, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way. That means I'll give you direction for life. You want to find purpose for life and direction? Follow me. I just read a study about millennials and how millennials, that's one of the things they grapple with. The millennial is grappling, what's my purpose in life? How do I find my purpose in life? Jesus says, I'll show you the purpose, the way. Jesus says, I will show you the truth. He says, I am the truth. To follow me is to be in truth. He does not say, I am a truth. 
says, I am the truth. And then he says, I am the life, meaning eternal life, which is not just living forever as we've talked about, but it also means what? It means a quality of life that life with mission, that life with joy, that life with satisfaction. Jesus says, I am all these things. So you've got to put your faith in. You've got to put your trust in me. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, uh, in his little commentary on John, puts it this way. I kind of like this. He says, in essence, what we're learning here is that Jesus is saying, there is direction for you and me, right? Direction, the way. There is the solution of all problems ultimately for you and uh, for you in me. He's the truth. Then he says, there is life sufficient for the fulfillment of your being and service in me. I love that quote by G. Campbell Morgan. We have all these things bundled up, wrapped up in Christ himself, which then takes us to something else that God gives to us, Jesus says, not only focus on me, but look at this. Jesus calls us now to trust in the Holy Spirit. Now, we talked a little bit about this last weekend when Jesus stood there. Remember, at the Feast of the Tabernacles, he declared, out of me shall come rivers of living water. In other words, come and drink me in. And we learned that what he meant by that is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not going to leave his disciples or you and me as orphans in this world. But because he goes, we now receive his spirit. I want to read to you more of the passage. Let me start at verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Now, some passages say counselor or comforter comes to the word paraclete, and it's an interesting word. Let me stop for a moment. When he talks about the advocate, obviously he's referring to the Holy Spirit, but in the original language, the word that's being used for advocate there actually means one who will make you brave or one who will make you braver. So Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who's going to make you braver, who will never leave you. Verse 17, he is, the one who will make you more brave, is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him. Do you know why? Because the world's not looking for the truth. That's that's also a fact today. So if you're not looking for the truth, but a truth or many different forms of truth, you can't recognize the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, because he lives with you now and later will be in you. That's Pentecost. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. How will they know? Because the Spirit will have come in. He says, those who accept my commandments, obey them, are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Judas, not to be confused with Iscariot, but the disciple with that name, said to him, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? And Jesus replied, listen, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. 
And remember, my words are not my own. What I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. Now, I'm telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the one who will make you more brave as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and he'll remind you of everything that I've told you. Now, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift that the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you, I'm going away, but I will come back again to you again. If you really love me, you will be happy that I'm going to the Father who is greater than I am. I have told you these things before they happen so that when they do happen, you will believe. I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. Come, let's be going. Wow, what a passage packed with so much. Can you imagine those poor men trying to take all that in? But here's the point. What Jesus is saying is, look, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. Now, not only is the Lord coming back someday, we had that expectation, but the Lord did come back by sending his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be with these men and women and with you and me, not just to be with us or upon us, but to actually live within us, within you and within me. That is so exciting that the Holy Spirit wants to be in us and with us. And Jesus says, you'll know that. You'll know that I'm alive and I'm real, and I'm with my Father, because the Spirit will bear witness of that. Uh, a man by the name of Roald Amundsen was uh, the man who discovered the, uh, the meridian, the magnetic meridian at the North Pole. He's also a man who discovered the, the Arctic. And uh, on his trip, he took with him a homing pigeon. And when he got to the North Pole, when he got to where he wanted to be, he let that pigeon go. And that homing pigeon made its bat way back to Norway. And when Amundsen's wife opened the door one day and looked out, she saw that pigeon circling and circling and circling. And she knew in that moment that meant her husband was alive. The presence of the Holy Spirit in us, in you, in me, gives us that assurance that he is alive, that Christ is alive. So Jesus says, focus on me and who I am. He says, trust the Holy Spirit who I'm going to give you. And thirdly, Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to trust me and look forward to the future, that there's a future coming. And you can have confidence in that future. Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 14, verse 1, these words. He said, don't, don't let your hearts be troubled, remember? Trust in God, trust also in me. Listen, there is more than enough room in my Father's house. If, there, if, it, if this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am. You know the way to where I'm going. Now nah, we don't know the way, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus said, here it is. 
I am, remember we talked about this just a minute ago, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to Father but through me. But through me. Isn't that beautiful? And that was Jesus saying, listen, because I am with the Father, I'm assuring you that when you die, when you leave this world, you're going to be with me and the Father. Now, I don't think that passage literally means Jesus is up there with a construction crew creating apartments for each one of us, but it does have the picture. The words and the language has this picture of the Middle East where oftentimes you'll have several families living together in a home, and many times you'll see the uh, floors of the home unfinished because the child hasn't gotten married yet, the family hasn't moved in yet. But eventually, you can have a home with three or four families living in apartments within that home. That's what Jesus means. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to assure you, I want to give you the absolute assurance that because I'm with the Father, and you have the witness of my Spirit, you're also going to be with the Father as well. So let's sum this all up. What are the three things that you and I need to do as we move through this world with all of its troubles and the troubles that we often experience ourselves? Number one, remember how important it is for you and me to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. There's a story told about the golf legend Arnold Palmer in 1961, uh, he was uh, getting ready at the Masters to, to win. It was very exciting. And uh, he only had one more uh, hole to go. He was leading the field uh, by uh, an entire stroke. And um, all of a sudden, as he came to the last shot, he had a great, he had a great drive, hit it off the tee, is right where it belonged. The ball was perfectly positioned. As he, as he came up to that ball, a friend of his was in the gallery, and the friend shouted out and said, hey, come over here. And so he went over there. And, and I'm sorry, not Arnold Palmer, but Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholas. And Jack Nicholas went over there, and, and his friend stuck out his hand and said, you know, shake my hand, and congratulations to Jack. Jack said at that moment, when he stuck his hand out in 61 and shook the hand of his friend, he said, I realized I had lost my focus. He went back to the ball to take his next hit and put it in a sand trap. Took another hit and put it barely on the lip of the green. And when he went to putt, he missed the putt and lost. And Nicholas said, I will never, ever allow that to happen again. How about you? Where are your eyes focused right now? Who are your eyes focused on right now? Can we just be honest that these last few years, many of us have gotten our eyes focused on a politician or two? Many of us have gotten our eyes focused on COVID. Many of us have gotten our eyes focused on people we disagree with. Many of us have gotten our eyes focused on a certain, you know, uh, source of news. Many of us have gotten our eyes focused on a pastor or on a celebrity. And our eyes need to be focused on Jesus and not these other people. 
and not these other places and not these other things and not these other outlets, but on Christ and Christ alone. But understand, coming at you and me 24-7 are all kinds of other images. Even as we think about what's going on in Ukraine, as awful as it is, we need to keep our eyes still focused on Christ. And when things happen in your life and my life, Let's not get our eyes focused on our sickness, our illness, our finances, our troubles. Let us look past them and keep our eyes focused on Christ. Our head down in his word and his truth. Number two, stay yielded to the Holy Spirit. Believe the Holy Spirit indwells you and stay yielded to the presence of the Spirit. I came across a true story the other day. It was very moving. It's very powerful. Uh, John Ortberg tells uh, the story in one of his books, God is Closer Than You Think. And it's a story that his friend Kim told him. And Kim said to him that one day her dad saw a woman off the side of the road with a flat tire and decided to pull off the shoulder behind and to help out. Uh, Her dad's mom stayed in the car while he went out to change the flat. And while he was changing the flat, another driver came along in his car and accidentally sideswiped the car that her dad was working on, and it fell over on him. It ripped his thumb off at the joint. It broke five of his ribs, punctured his lung, and he began to bleed. His his his, uh, lung began to fill with blood. His wife, who was like only five feet, two inches or so, ran out, of course, and she grabbed the bumper of that car and she said, in Jesus' name, and stood up and literally lifted it off him enough for the other woman to get his body out from underneath the car and, of course, call the ambulance. Incidentally, about five days later, they discovered that his wife had broken a vertebra in her back. No wonder she lifted that thing. Supernatural strength, God-given, I guess. Anyway, when they got him to the ambulance, he was in absolute shock. And the doctor said, there's no use trying to sew his thumb back on because he's probably not even going to live. And so as they prepared to try to operate on him, all of a sudden, his ashen gray skin turned beautiful, pink, healthy, full of oxygen and life. And he came to, and he began singing the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. And he invited the whole operating room to join him in that hymn. They didn't need to give him any oxygen. He was healed. Later on, he found out that about the time that his skin turned healthy and he got his breath and he he just, you know, was very much alive and seeing that hymn, his father-in-law, who was a pastor, was leading his church in an emergency prayer session to lift up his son-in-law. Now, sometimes you hear a story like that and you just tell yourself, you know, this is probably apocryphal, it's probably made up, it's probably not true, but this is a true story because this story is about a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. His name was James Loder. And not only was he saved in that moment, his life literally, but he was also changed in that moment. Though he had taught at seminary his whole life, For him, God was always abstract. God was kind of out there. But all of a sudden, he became aware, no, God is real. God is in here. 
And Kim, who writes about her father's experience, writes, he became known at Princeton as the weeping professor. He began to live, she said, one moment to another in a God-bathed, God-soaked, God-intoxicated world. Why? How? Because his life was shook up to the reality of God and God's presence. Oh, that you and I could live with such an awareness every day that God has tabernacled in our lives, your life and my life, despite all the troubles of this world. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Accept the fact that his spirit, and rely and rejoice in his spirit who lives in you. And last but not least, live every day with heaven in mind. Live every day with heaven in mind. I don't know if Jesus is going to come back while you and I are here or if we're going to pass away. But what I know is this, in a short time, we're all going to appear before him. And if we're his followers, what a joyful experience that will be. You've probably heard this story before, but it bears telling again. It's about Billy Graham, who in the, uh, the year 2000 was invited by the city fathers of Charlotte to come for a celebration of and honoring of his life. And Billy Graham, who was suffering from Parkinson's at the time, uh, was hesitant about going, but they said, look, you don't have to say a lot. You don't have to give a big speech. Just please come. Say just a few words. So he did. When all the festivities were over and, and Dr. Graham got up to speak, he said to everyone, he said, I want to tell you a story about um, Albert Einstein. He said one day Albert Einstein was in transit from one city to another, and he was riding a train. And the conductor came into to the uh, cab to collect tickets, and, and Einstein was trying to find his ticket in his vest pocket, in his suit pocket, in his pants pocket. And, you know, no matter where he was looking, he couldn't find it. And the conductor walked up to him and said, it's okay, Dr. Einstein, you don't need to show me your ticket. I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you paid for it. And the conductor went on. Well, right before the, the conductor went into the next cab, he, he turned around and, and he saw Dr. Einstein on the ground, on his knees, on the floor of the, of the uh, car that he was in, searching for that ticket. So the conductor came back and he said, Dr. Einstein, I told you, I know who you are. We all know who you are. It's okay. We believe you bought the ticket. And Einstein looked up at him and Einstein said to him, young man, I also know who I am. I just don't know where I'm going. The absent-minded professor, right? Billy Graham looked at the crowd who chuckled at his story, and he said, look, he said, in my old age, my family says I've become rather slovenly and not so fastidious anymore. So I went out and I bought a brand new suit for this occasion. He said, I want you to remember this. The next time you see me in this suit, it'll be at my funeral. But I don't want you to remember the suit. When you see this suit, I want you to remember this, that I know who I am and I know where I'm going. Do you know who you are? You're a child of God if you've invited Christ into your life. And though the world may be filled with troubles, we know where we're going. And until we get there, we are partnering with the Lord to make a difference, to continue to make known his hope here near and far. Father, bless this message to our lives. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us hope. And God, in this hopeless feeling world, help us keep our eyes stayed on your son, our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray.
Amen. Hey, listen, I want to thank you for joining us every weekend. And I want you to know whether you join us online from your home, uh, across the country, around the world, or at one of our venues or campuses, we value you. I value you so much. And, you know, we're a, a body of believers around 5,000 of us, if you include everybody who's watching and part of our congregation. And in a sense, you're partners with us in making known the love and the truth of Jesus Christ. One of the ways that people partner with us is through their giving. And I want to thank those of you who have partnered with us to that level. There are about 2,400 people out of our 5,000 who have partnered with us and given in some way. It means you've given at least once. We have that on our records, and so we thank you for that investment. But may I ask you to consider being more generous in your partnership with us. We'd love for our partnership to grow. We'd love for you, if you're not part of giving and, and yet you're gaining for this ministry, to be part of this with us because we're here to make a difference. And I know it's a hard time to ask because of inflation, etc. But as our costs go up, things get more expensive as well. So I'd just like to challenge you to ask God. See, that's the key. Ask God if he would have you partner with us. And then ask him to tell you how much. And there are ways that you can do that online if you're not part of our regular community. And we would invite that and we would thank you for that. So please consider partnering with us. God bless you.